channel open. Welcome back to Weekly Trek, a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network. I am your host, Alex Perry. What's today's date? The date. Today's show was recorded on February the 28th, 2020, and is current through the Star Trek Picard episode, The Impossible Box. So beware of spoilers. All right, let's get into the show. Good day, Voyager, and welcome to A Briefing with Neelix. It's a catchy title, isn't it? Weekly Trek is a 30-minute news show covering the biggest stories in the Star Trek franchise. We are in a new golden age of Star Trek. There are five television shows in production, possibly more on the way, and enough merchandise to fill the Bajoran wormhole. So stick with me and I'll help you sort the real facts from a lot of the Dominion propaganda that you'll find online. But I can't do this alone. And my guest this week is returning guest, Carl Wonders. Carl, welcome back to Weekly Trek. Joel and True, how are you today? I am very well, my friend. Thank you for the traditional Romulan greeting. I will not (laughs) ask you to tell me what your true name is. (laughs) So Carl, I want to know something that's got you excited about Star Trek at the moment. What's got you moving at Warp 10? Gosh, there's so much to think about. And this struck me watching the last episode of Picard just last night. I am loving the way the creators of the show, even more so than in Discovery, which they did great job of, but they're really tying together all of these little threads throughout the Star Trek universe. I mean, we got... Would you say that you find it to be extremely pleasurable? I would say that it is extremely... (laughs) 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 Yes, it it is extremely pleasurable to me that we're getting, of all things, we get a Prime Factors reference and a very important one. It's an episode that people may have seen a long time ago, may not have thought too much of lately, but it's, it's an important one now. And then... You know, I, I, even the little things like you see Soji has a Adventures of Flutter lunchbox from when she was quote unquote a child and just just little things like that, that they just make this universe seem so big and comprehensive and all tied together that it's a wonderful thing that they're doing, I think, especially with all this Voyager coming up and the way they, they're tying in even events in the Delta Quadrant now back to the Federation and, and everything that's going on. It just makes me so happy to notice these things that they're referencing here and there and making part of the the big picture of Star Trek. My pick for what I'm feeling good about Star Trek this week is exactly the same. (laughs) I was thrilled with the references and callbacks that there were this week, you know, because there's a real fine line between doing it and doing it well. Mm -hmm. And It's really easy to just sort of drop in a reference that you pulled off of Memory Alpha. It's a whole other thing to do it in a way that's actually really relevant to the story as a whole. Yes. You know, I'm thinking about comparing and contrasting this episode with an example of a time that it was done where I thought it was not done so well. So this episode, I thought everything was really tightly bound together, weaved in throughout the episode. The Prime Factors reference, I mean, who would have thought that Prime Factors was going to be <laughs> a thing in Star Trek Picard? But yet here we are. It is extremely pleasurable to me that that is the case. <laughs> and it matters to the story. It propels us into the next episode compared to Discovery Season 2, where Pike first boards the discovery and they're running through his list of commendations and it's clear they've just kind of pulled it off of Mm -hmm. memory alpha and like one of them is a Cardassian distinction which they've not even made first contact with the Cardassian Union so why Captain Pike has the legion of 
I don't even remember what it is anymore. Yeah. But, it, but it was one of those things where there's a difference between pulling in that stuff because it matters to the story you're trying to tell and pulling in that stuff because you just want to sort of pepper the language with it and make it seem authentic. Absolutely. And Picard, they have definitely nailed that in a way that I don't think the Kelvin timeline necessarily did. I think Discovery has done well, but also occasionally done badly. So far, I've not felt that way about Picard at all. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think this is the perfect example of that type of callback because it solves a story problem that you have. And it, when you think about it, it makes complete sense because, of course, the Borg would have been around and that entirely possible that they would have run across these people at some point. And it makes so much sense. And if you're not in that world and you're not, you know, frankly, as geeked out about this stuff as we are, apparently, it's not going to affect your enjoyment of the episode. It's not going to say, oh, well, that's a reference for people who pay more attention than I do if you're new to the series. I think it's just something that it works on multiple levels and it works really well. All right. Well, with that, let's turn to the week's top stories. There's a war going on and I'm a reporter. So we're actually not starting with Picard this week because I thought we would start with something a little different. This week, we're actually starting with Star Trek Discovery and the news that Star Trek Discovery has wrapped filming of its third season. Yes, in the last few days, most of the cast and crew have been posting on social media about the completion of filming for Star Trek Discovery Season 3. They wrapped filming of their 13th episode. It would seem that we are therefore on track for Section 31 to be the next show to film. That's what we've been told previously by Alex Kurtzman about the production schedule. Is, is that once Star Trek Discovery Season 3 wrapped, Section 31 was next up. I know there has been some folks on the internet who have been theorizing or reporting that filming for the Section 31 show has been delayed in some fashion. Obviously, there's been no official word of anything like that. As with all internet rumors, I would cast a big grain of salt on all of it until it's officially confirmed. But very, very exciting. Star Trek Discovery Season 3 is in the can, at least from a shooting perspective. I know mean, there will be months of post-production left to go on those final episodes, but it does kind of keep up this drumbeat of the premiere of Star Trek Discovery Season 3 cannot be too far around the corner. Carl, how are you feeling about that? I'm really excited for the season, primarily just because they're not held back by any kind of arguments around canon or anything like that. They're off into the far future. We've never seen anything like where they are at. They have basically free reign to do whatever they want. And that just excites me so much. The images that we've seen have been very exciting. I'm still on the fence about whether we're going to see this show or the Lower Decks show premiering first. Um, I don't know if there's been any official word about those. In some ways, I almost hope that it's the Lower Decks show just because it's going to be a bit of a change up as far as the attitude and, and the tone of the series. Especially in recent weeks, Picard has become very, very serious and very, not dark, but dramatic. And we know that Discovery tends to be in that bent. And I would love to see a fresh version of Star Trek that isn't quite in the same dark and brooding kind of feel that we've been getting from these two shows. I love both of the shows. I just would, if I had to choose one, which of course I don't get to pick. But if I had to choose one, I would choose 
what seems to be the lighter take on Star Trek and maybe kind of be a little bit of a palate cleanser between the dramatic Picard show and then what was probably going to be a dramatic Discovery show. Yeah, I would love to see Lower Decks next, not least because I'm just really curious about mm-hmm. the show and, and what it is. I do think that's a point very well taken about the tonal shift. I mean, Picard and Discovery are quite different shows in the way that they're structured, but they are still sort of serious dramas. Discovery might have a bit more of an action-adventure bent to it, but as you say, Picard has leaned a little harder into action and adventure over the last couple of weeks as the story has started to pick up. So yeah, there is some certainly some similarities between the two shows in that regard. And Heather Caden had said around the premiere of Picard that both Lower Decks and Discovery would be ready to go around the same time. And it was out of her and Kurtzman's hands about which came next, that it was CBS All Access that would make that ultimate final decision. But one way or another, there is more Star Trek on the way, including Discovery Season 3, and that is very exciting. Mm-hmm. All right, well, our second story, we're in the Star Trek Picard section of the episode, relates to Jonathan Frakes and last week's Star Trek Picard episode, Stardust City. Rag. Frakes did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, actually with Phil Perello of The Hollywood Reporter, who is also the host of the Transporter M3 podcast with Scott Kaler of MyGN. Phil did this interview with Jonathan Frakes, and Jonathan talks a lot about the episode, but specifically about one scene of the episode. Now, we know if you've been on the internet at all in the past 10 days, this was a fairly controversial episode of Star Trek, I think, both for the way that it began and for the way that it ended for at least two characters on the show. But in his interview, Frakes actually very much focuses on what I think was a universally beloved part of this episode, which is that short scene between Picard and Seven of Nine, right before Seven beams back down to the bar to murder Bejazel, in which they're talking about whether they both feel like they have reclaimed their humanity. And Frakes is talking about how uh, he, he was asked if it was a coincidence that he ended up being the director uh, for the meeting of these two iconic characters. And he said that it was completely luck of the draw, but that he was grateful to be a part of reintroducing fans to Seven, and particularly the Picard Seven scene uh, right before the end there. He said that the scene was mostly worked out with the help of Michael Chabon, Kiva Goldsman, Alex Kurtzman, and Kirsten Beyer. It's such a simple and beautifully performed scene between the two actors. And then Frakes goes on to say something interesting, which ties in a bit to our next story uh, a little bit. But he says, in his opinion... If Gene Roddenberry was still alive, that scene is actually one that Roddenberry would never have allowed to be on screen. There's obviously been this huge debate about the Icheb death scene at the beginning of the episode, and the next scene right after this one where Seven does kill Bejazel, and then the scene at the end of the episode where Jurassic murders Maddox. But Frakes is talking specifically about this Picard Seven scene, and he says, you know, he's talking about how Gene was not really interested in the human characters having the level of emotional catharsis, to use his words, that the two characters have in this scene. And he goes on to explain that the notion of self-doubt and the vulnerability, especially for a character like Picard, the damage of past experiences are so much more compelling to watch, and that Picard therefore is a denser show than Next Gen, I think that's fair to say. Pushing Picard to these places, watching Patrick act that out, and he was in the writer's room as they developed the story, it's all so rewarding to see. That's a very interesting take on this episode, Carl. As I say, the debate has been very much on would Gene have approved of the opening scene? Would he have approved of the ending scene? I hadn't put any thought into whether he would approve have approved of this scene between Picard and Seven. What's your take on it? No, I think it's a very interesting question.
question. I know from past interviews with people like Brennan Braga and Ron Moore, they've always lamented the fact that Roddenberry was not interested in inter-character conflict or even emotional conflict within a person. If I remember correctly, he, he very much objected to Ron Moore's original script to the bonding, where he felt that this kid would not have an emotional reaction to his mother's death. And I, I, I think it was fairly apt that they, that they pushed back on that and they actually made a very good episode out of that. It does seem to me that, that Roddenberry was of the belief that by the 24th century, we would have evolved to this point where we no longer had these kind of hangups. I have always struggled with that notion that people would become that far beyond where we are today. And I've always liked the times that we have seen characters deal with conflict, internal conflict in particular. I think back to episodes like Family, where Picard immediately reacts to his having been assimilated by the Borg. But even there, you have, it's a story, and it's telling, that's his reaction to that experience is part of the plot of that episode. But then after that episode is gone, we don't really see it again until probably until Hugh comes onto the Enterprise for the first time in I, Borg. So to see this callback and to have this moment between these two people who both are former Borg, and for Picard to admit that he still has not recovered from that experience. And this is this is a Picard who went through the catharsis of family, the, the Picard who at one point, you know, came to grips a bit with his emotions in Iborg and accepted Hugh as an individual, and then even had the experience of first contact in the movie, where he dealt with his emotions around the Borg and had that what I would imagine would have been a fairly satisfying moment where he breaks the neck of the Borg Queen at the very end. You know, to, to still be carrying this feeling of, I'm, I have not recovered fully. I'm still not fully the person that I once was before I was taken by the Borg. I thought that was a wonderful scene. Um, it's probably one of my favorite scenes of the show so far. And if I can just to make a, a slightly on-brand <laughs> comment, the fact that they capped that episode off, and we were talking before about tying together these threads from previous episodes and shows, the way that Jeff Russo brings in the Voyager theme as Seven is leaving to beam down to what we know now is is to commit murder. We don't know that at the time necessarily. I thought that was another wonderful way of tying everything together. And and I, I just love the scene. I thought it was probably the best scene of the, of the entire episode. And maybe one of the best scenes of the series. And mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know, getting this opportunity to have these two characters interact in a way that, you know, was relatively quick, but so deep and so meaningful and powerful and that has multiple seasons of the next generation and multiple seasons as Voyager sort of hanging around it or building towards that moment was really, really powerful. And yeah, I mean, on the Gene thing, you know, Gene's philosophy by the time of the next generation, because I think his philosophy did evolve considerably Mm -hmm. over the course of his life, was a very maximalist position on this idea of the future utopia and the evolved man. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that maximalist position is the right way to tell interesting stories. What I do think, though, is that there should always be some tension, some push, some pull. It is the kind of thing that you know we should always be aspiring to move towards. And the show should ultimately come back to reinforcing the idea of being optimistic and more enlightened. But if characters have to go through some hard times in order to get there. Well, there are plenty of examples of characters in the previous shows that went through hard times, not least of which are 
Jean-Luc Picard and Seven of Nine, who were assimilated by the Borg and have the trauma of that to deal with. And that was something that, you know, the previous shows did not shy away from in a 1990s sense. You know, they didn't quite deal with it in the same way that modern television would, but they definitely did not sort of entirely forget it and move on from it. So yeah, you know, great to hear Frakes. It's so nice to hear that for Frakes, this scene was as meaningful as it was for us. Because I think for most casual viewers watching the episode, the Picard 7 scene right before she beams down is not the one that's going to most stick in your mind as being an impactful scene. You do really have to know and love and appreciate your Star Trek in order for that one to kind of bubble up to the top in an episode that was so flamboyant and in your face and aggressive, you know, in both a good and a bad way and and very much in an intentional way, you know, it was trying to be that way, you know, for that quiet moment to be the one that many of us have sort of fixated on is a really good one. And for Frakes to have done the same says that he is 100% one of us. Absolutely. On the same topic, but talking about it from a slightly different angle, Michael Shabon has continued his engagement with fan questions over on Instagram and gave what was actually a really long and thoughtful answer to a question that many were asking after last week's episode, Stardust City Rag, about whether Star Trek Picard is showing us Star Trek's utopian ideal or not, or is it showing us something that's counter to the sort of utopian ideal that we think that Star Trek has. I don't normally read long sections of something that somebody has said or written, but there's no way for me to summarize the writing of Michael Shabon in a way that does it justice. So I am just going to read a section of this answer. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read a portion of it because I think there's so much in here for us to unpack. So Shabon says, If Star Trek has reflected our world, it's in a kind of utopian funhouse mirror where everything looks better. I would say that by and large that has been true, though possibly not to the degree that many Trek fans claim or feel. But there's another side to the world, the people and society depicted in Star Trek, which is all the characters, planets, cultures, mores, interactions that take place outside of Starfleet and the Federation. Many of these outside cultures and characters, the empires and alliances and unions, have deliberately reflected aspects of our world with all its the imperfection, intolerance, brutality, its humiliations and injustices, its evils. I don't mean just in a thematic sense, but in the behavior of individual non-Federation, non-Starfleet characters, in the the construction of societies around prejudices and inequalities, violence, lust for power, etc. In the one long 10-part story we're telling, we're asking two questions about the greater world of Star Trek, i.e. the Federation and everything outside of the Federation. One, a venerable Star Trek question with a long pedigree in previous series and films. What happens when the Federation, the Roddenberry Federation with all its enlightened and noble intentions, free from want, disease, war, greed, capitalism, intolerance, etc., is tested by forces inimical to its values? What happens when two of its essential principles, security and liberty, say, come into conflict? The answer has to be, at first it buckles. It wobbles. It may, to some extent, compromise or even betray its values, or at the very least be sorely tempted to do so. If not, there's no point asking the question, though it's a question that any society with aspirations like ours or the Federation's need to ask. 
if nothing can ever truly test the Federation, if nothing can rock its perfection, then it's just a magical land. It's Lothlorien in its enchanted bubble, untouchable by the shadow, and also profoundly inhuman. To me, it's the humanity of the Federation, which means among many admirable things, it's imperfection, it's vulnerability, and constant need to defend itself from our own worst natures that makes it truly inspiring. The other related question we're asking, what about the people who live outside, at the edges or even within the Federation, but who for various reasons aren't quite of it? Ex-Starfleet officers, refugees, people like Seven who served on a Starfleet ship but was never actually in Starfleet people who have fallen through the cracks or fallen victim to their own weaknesses. The space we found for Picard is not Dark Federation. It's one of people who live and work at or beyond the margins of the Federation, who travel beyond its boundaries to find the truth. Carl, break it down for us. Do you agree with Michael Chabon? I think I definitely agree with Michael Chabon. And it kind of goes back to the last story as well for me of you know the Roddenberry ideal versus these characters that have depth and conflict to them. I've always felt, at least this is, and this is just me, that Utopia or this wonderful federation that we see depicted in a lot of Star Trek doesn't happen by accident. We don't just fall into this. It's something that you have to work for. And I think we see, we've seen that throughout the various Star Trek shows. And it's something that you can lose if you're not careful. If you think about going back to Enterprise and how the Federation was founded and the difficulties around that, you have in The Next Generation, which is probably the peak, I would say, of Roddenberry idealism, you still have the trope of the badmiral that shows up, you know, several times a season and does something awful that you have to then correct. You know, Deep Space Nine, of course, has all these examples, whether it's the Dominion War, you have the Changeling infiltration and Admiral Layton turning Earth into a security state for a short period of time to try to deal with that. And then, you know, in Discovery, you then have these characters who basically have to earn the ability to call themselves almost Star Trek in a way where you have these conflicts and eventually you come out of it into hopefully something better. And now in Picard where you're, again, you're, the Federation has been tested and will it hold up to this test or will it collapse? You know, my, my sense has always been that it's not the people that have evolved. It's people are going to be people and humans are going to have the same impulses and the same weaknesses now in the 21st century, in the 24th century, maybe we'll see in the what is it, the 33rd century or, or wherever it is that we're going to see in Discovery Season 3, it's can we get beyond that? Can we move beyond these petty problems that we have? We don't lose them. It, it's almost a Vulcan way of getting beyond the things that hold us back to prop up those around us. And of course, there's going to be people who fall out of the system. We, we see that with Rafi a lot, who's somebody who lost everything partly through her own choices, it seems. But these are people who aren't the squeaky clean Starfleet types that we tend to see a lot in Star Trek. These are the fringe characters. And, and it's one of the things that I think is the most interesting about the show is that we get to see the people that we don't typically see in a Star Trek show. We, we hardly ever see anybody in Starfleet uniforms in the show. And I think that's great. I, I love this shining a light on people that tend to get overlooked when we're telling these stories in, in past episodes and past series of Star Trek. It is a perfectly valid philosophical approach. And I personally believe the right one, though I understand to take the position, as Shabon says, that in order for that utopia to mean something, it has to be 
challenged and it has to be demonstrated to be the right course of action. And if it does just exist like that, it is just the magical future that's totally disconnected from our present. And so that that's the thing I've always really liked about Star Trek. I actually, the, the episodes that resonate with me most strongly are the ones where they are putting some element of this optimistic, hopeful future on trial and it wins the day. You know, which is not to say that it's automatically obviously going to win from the beginning. And from that, the story is more powerful and more interesting and ultimately makes you feel better about it at the end of the day because you can see that it was tested and survived and therefore feels attainable rather than just being some totally idealized vision that has zero relevance for you know, the world that we live in today. Mm-hmm. So we will flash back with our last story, which is an interview with Walter Koenig, <laughs> who played Chekhov in the original series. As everybody knows Walter was giving an interview and it's such a really interesting interview. I mean, he talks about a lot of stuff he's talked about before, finding out he wasn't in the animated series, his relationship with Gene, his relationship with his fellow cast members in the original series. The reason I picked this out to talk about it on Weekly Trek is because it does seem like Walter actually has a bit of a number of conflicted feelings about his legacy with Star Trek. He says at one point, a very strong part of me wants to leave Star Trek behind to have it be such a central part of my life at this stage does not speak well for what else I have accomplished given that people are still harking back to a time that is more than five decades old. On the other hand, it was a good time. It was a pleasant time. I have friendships that endured throughout this past half century because of Star Trek. I'm pleased that I'm still here and in good health. I appreciate that. I do convention these days, although I'm in the process of winding that part down. This is the first year that I've actually seen said to my booking agents that I'm limiting my appearances. Carl, this was really interesting. I have a tough time deciding if Walter is, and this is probably too strong a word to use, but it's the only one I can think of, ashamed about his participation in Star Trek, or if he is ashamed that he is held up as a paragon of what Star Trek is when he feels like he only played a relatively minor role in it. What was your take on reading the whole interview? Yeah, I felt the same way, actually. I mean, I... I can see where he's coming from, where he's done a fair bit of acting. He's, I mean, he's, he got into Star Trek at such a young age and seemingly have had that define his entire career, despite, you know, he was on Babylon 5, he did other shows, he's done a lot of bit parts here and there, you know, to be at the age he's at and to still have, and here's, you know, Chekhov from Star Trek, despite all the other things he's done and he's, he's done writing, he's done all sorts of activities. I can sort of see how that would, I don't know if embarrass maybe, but I, I, it would wear on me, I would think. At some point I'd want to see, yeah, don't you want to talk about these 12 other things I did? I mean, obviously if you're going to a Star Trek convention, you're going to be talking about Star Trek. But, you know, when he's invited to things, if he came to say AwesomeCon, which is a convention here in DC where we both are based, and to have it all be about Star Trek and not about any of the other things he's done um, that I'm sure are across the science fiction realm, among other things, I I could see that becoming tiresome uh, a little bit. And, you know, the only other thing I'll say is that it's a shame to me, and, and I completely respect his personal feelings and and his want to do obviously how he wants to spend his time is his business. It's, it's just another one of these original cast members that we're not going to see as much of anymore. And, you know, we're, we're really, you know, George Takei does not do that many appearances that I'm aware of. I I didn't see him at, at any of the STLV and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. No, it's been a couple of years. I think that's something he's tried, he's tried to move on from that. I mean, we have William Shatner and that's, 
about it now, which is unfortunate. I'm glad that he's still in good health. I'm glad that this is a decision he's making for himself, not one that's kind of being made for him for various reasons. But at the same time, it's I'm sad to see another of the original cast who's not going to be as visible as they once were. Yeah, and also that, you know, he does have these conflicted feelings about his legacy. In some ways, I get it. In other ways, I think he's being a bit potentially too self-deprecating about, you know, what his role has meant to so many people. I mean, there's a reason why they love him and it doesn't matter how much time he put into it or how many lines he had or how much screen time he put into it that does not invalidate what he did in what he believes was his limited you know sort of small role Mm -hmm. in the franchise as a whole and you know it's it's meaningful it means something and you know i think it's to be expected that eventually he would decide to start pulling back from the public sphere i think he is an announced guest for stlv this year uh so we will at least get to see him there and and frankly, wish him all the best in his retirement. Absolutely. And hope that, you know, as he continues to think about his role in what is the biggest entertainment franchise in American history, if not world history, that, you know, he he feels more fondly about it. I don't get the sense that he feels badly about it. I just feel as though it's one of those things where, you know, after how many years of doing this, you just kind of tire of the, of the routine. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you. He's, he's being self-deprecating, you know, where he says like, you know, why would I do a farewell tour? I'm not Brando or Cary Grant or anybody like that. I'm not that important, but as somebody who grew up watching reruns of the original series and, and the original films, you know, he's, he was a big part of my formative years of becoming a Star Trek fan. So he made it feel that he's important, but, I think he's important to a lot of us in in that regard. All right. Well, we've talked about the facts. And now let's speculate on what's going to happen in the future of Star Trek. You make some very good points, Captain. But it's still all speculation and theory. So each week, I and my guest give you a wish or theory we're nurturing about Discovery, Picard, the future of the franchise, any of the shows coming up. So, Carl... Let's hear your theory or wish for this week. So I've kind of uh, given up on the theorying business. I've had a rotten track record of them. Join the club. So um, watching the last episode, uh, The Impossible Box, if you check the runtime on that episode, it runs a little more north of 50 minutes. And my wish is that CBS lets Star Trek take better advantage of the fact that they're on a streaming platform that isn't beholden to the hourly time slots and advertising requirements that go along with network TV. I've seen a lot of clips and suggestions of deleted scenes in Picard. If you get the Blu-rays or the DVDs of Discovery, you see a lot of bonus scenes that didn't make the cut. And I kind of would love to see, if not a full hour, like they do on HBO or those types of platforms and channels, the ability to stretch out these stories a little bit. Some of the deleted scenes, particularly in Discovery, I think would have added a lot to the episode, maybe not made some of them feel quite as rushed and the viewer gets jerked around from one scene to another and these things that are happening really quickly and the ability to to kind of just step back and have an extra five to 10 minutes to let the story breathe a little bit and add in some more layering and character work and things that, you know, if you're saying we have 42 minutes to tell a story and that's it, then you may end up having to put by the wayside. Um, So I just would love to see the embracing of this streaming medium and the ability to tell stories that may not fit within 
what a network sensibility might be. Yeah, the first five episodes of Picard were almost 1990s TNG era fastidious about being 42, 43, 44 minutes in length. And last week's Impossible Box was the first that was over 50 minutes for the show. So I think we might finally be moving in that direction. I think part of what it is is that because they are on television in Canada, they do try and be respectful of the Canadian television network's need to program ads around it. But ultimately, they should be doing this for the way that 90% of people who watch the show consume it, which is if you're in the US, it's on a streaming platform. If you're anywhere other than Canada, it's on a streaming platform. And if you're in Canada, you have two options to watch it on television or to watch it on a streaming service. So 100% of the world has access to it on a streaming service. They should take advantage of that. And yeah, I think that's perfectly logical. So my theory this week is actually a listener submission. Thank you to everybody who has sent in a submission. It means that I don't have to give something uh, that will end up being extremely wrong. And I love hearing everybody's theories and wishes for what they want to see for the future of the franchise. So the wish this week comes from Caleb Dorsch, who submitted a wish that A, there'd be a Starfleet Academy show, which I'm right there with you. And that if they do a Starfleet Academy show, they will need some professorial types to pepper in amongst all the young guns. And the wish was that we see Colomini returning as Miles O'Brien, since at the end of Deep Space Nine, he does become a professor at Starfleet Academy. And also, let's get Will Wheaton back as Wesley Crusher and have him play some role in the Starfleet Academy show as well, especially given that Will is now reaffiliated with the franchise in his role as the host of the Ready Room. Carl, would you like to see Will Wheaton and Colomini back on your television screen as Wesley Crusher and Miles O'Brien, respectively? I would love to see both of them. I'm very happy to see Will Wheaton as engaged and as excited about the new show as he is. Um, I know it's been an up and down experience in the realm of Star Trek for him. So to see him as immersed and he's always very intelligent and makes very good observations about things when you do see him at conventions but to see him as excited as he is it just makes me very happy um and of course i'd love to see professor o'brien in a classroom i imagine that his students would be playing all sorts of pranks and making him suffer on a daily basis because it wouldn't be o'brien without him suffering in some way or another but to see him on the screen again, I would absolutely love to see that. And I think I'd love to see Wesley have some role as like, I don't want them to go back on the story that they were telling about him becoming a traveler. Yeah. But it would be interesting to see, you know, who the kind of person he is now and also have some kind of agenda or kind of wider cosmic mission that he's on that just sort of happens to cross over or interact with some characters on some show in some way, shape or form. Absolutely. As long as he's out of his emo phase, um, I'll be very happy. (laughs) (laughs) You'd hope given the amount of time that has passed that that would be the case. (laughs) Do you have a theory or a wish for Discovery Picard or the future of the franchise that you'd like to share? Tweet them to me at Weekly Trek and I might feature your theory in a future episode. Well, that's all the time we've got for this episode of Weekly Trek. Thank you so much to my guest, Carl Wonders, for joining me today. Carl, how can people contact you if they want to continue the conversation? Best way to find me would be on Twitter. Um, my handle is at listening to film. I'm on there off and on throughout the day. Uh, love to talk about Star Trek uh, and various other topics as well. And you can find this show on Twitter at Weekly Trek and me at Alexander T. Perry. 
And if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast player of choice. And please check out some of the other great shows on the Tricorder Transmissions. And if you like our shows, please also consider becoming a Patreon of Tricorder, which you can find at patreon.com slash the Tricorder Transmissions. And lastly, if you're looking for Star Trek news on the internet, I hope you will turn to trekcore.com. Well, thank you, Carl. Thank you to all of my listeners. And until next week, live long and prosper. Prosper.